This morning I'm wearing many hats, uh, and one of them is I get to present the next section of our series of uh, King David, a man after God's own heart. Now, as a kid, there was a word that I hated to hear more than anything else. What that word is? Kevin has already got it. What's the word? It's no. I hated hearing it. In fact, I heard it so often that when my parents would actually give in to my, you know, incessant asking over and over and over again, because I, I employed that card, you know, just, if they said no the first time, maybe after the 100th time, maybe they would change their mind, or maybe they would see the validity of my request, and they'd actually say yes, and when they would say yes, because I heard no so often, I didn't really quite know what to do with myself. It's like, really? You know? So I heard no a lot. And so, like, growing up, you know, as, as you're growing up and you're watching your parents raise you as a, as a kid, how many of you ever thought, I'm never going to do this, whatever the thing is, you know? Fall asleep during Sunday football with your mouth wide open, you know, that type of thing. Well, this is one of those things that I promised myself I would never do, that I would say yes more often than I said no as a parent. Why are you laughing? You're laughing because most of you as parents know this is an impossible promise to keep, right? You know, as a dad of five, no is a word that is basically heard all day long, okay? It's all day long. It's a word that we use. These are actual requests from my children. Most of these within the last two weeks, okay? So just hang on with me. May I duct tape Joseph to the door? Can I move the car for you? That was Maggie. She's four. No. May I eat the candy bar that I got at Iwana? Now, mind you, this is two minutes before bedtime and 30 seconds after they brush their teeth. No. Can I start a fire without you? No. Can I climb on the neighbor's roof? No. Does grilled cheese sandwiches go in the VHS slot? No. They tried it anyway. Okay, that's why we don't have a VHS anymore. Can we get a monkey? Can we get a lamb? Can we get a dolphin? No. Where would we even put it? Can I get a missile proof car? How about a rocket launcher? No. An M16, a real one? No. Do I have enough money to buy an iPhone for myself? Uh, honey, your $3 isn't quite going to make it, okay? Even with the contract plan. Can I go live at Aiden Shepherdson's house? No. Can we cheer for the bears? No. Can we cheer for the lions? Uh, definitely not. And if you do, you're going to live at Aiden Shepherdson's house. Here's a good one. This is uh, within the last two weeks. This is Joseph. Can I get a baby sister for my birthday? Sorry, buddy, that ain't happening. All right. How about a Corvette? No. How about the SS Badger? For those of you who aren't familiar, that's the car ferry? Yes. So I said, what color do you want your Corvette? Can I? No. Can we? No. And the questions never, ever stop, do they? Parents, you know this. Seems like no is the word that you say most often, all the time. And getting a no response as a child can be kind of 
bummer. But getting it as an adult, that can be quite a different story. And sometimes it can be quite devastating, can't it? Maybe you got a no from a boss when you asked for that raise or that new position that had just opened up and he said no to you. Or maybe you were looking to seek a new employer and that employer said, no, we don't need you. Maybe you got a no from the bank when you applied for that loan. Maybe you got a no from the seller of the house that you put a bid on. You had your heart set on it, but they said no. They rejected your offer. Maybe you got uh, a no when you asked that person you liked out on a date. Or worse yet, maybe you got a no when you asked them to marry you. Maybe you got a no on a business proposal, or maybe from your business partner, or maybe you got a no from the building inspector. That's never a fun one, is it? Maybe you got a no from the doctor when you asked the doctor, am I free of this disease? Or maybe you got a no if you asked them, will I ever be able to have children? Maybe you heard a no from the college you had your heart set on, or maybe you got in, but the financial aid question, the response was no. It's hard to hear no, isn't it? It is. Especially when there doesn't seem to be a good answer to the follow-up question. Do you know what the follow-up question is? Why? Man, Kevin, you are spot on today. That's why you sit in the front row. Kevin's got it. We always follow that question up with the no, with the why. Or the why not. Especially when to us it seems like a good request. You know, as hard as it is to hear no from a boss, an employer, an employee, uh, uh, maybe a potential employer, a friend, a spouse, it's even harder to hear it from God. So this morning, the question that we have on the board here is, what do you do when God tells you no? And that's a question David is going to wrestle with in our next uh, chapter in King David, a man after God's own heart. So turn to 2 Samuel 7, and as you're turning... Uh, if you've got a pew Bible, it's actually number, uh, page number 273. So 2 Samuel 7, and it's on page 273 if you're looking in the pew Bible. And in the previous chapter, uh, David gathers up 30,000 troops to bring the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. Some people think this is for show, but others think this is for protection. You know, Philistines have taken the ark before, time and time again. The Israelites have lost it. They brought it back, and now David's going out to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, and he's very excited. And he's dancing and celebrating in front of the ark as they're bringing it in, just like it was mentioned in, in today's fusion video. But something happens. The ox kind of jar the cart, and off the cart comes the ark, and it starts to slide, and Uzzah the priest kind of, he goes like this to steady it, and God, bam, dead, strikes him dead. Just like that. He's there to save the ark. God strikes him dead. Why? Because God had strictly forbidden anyone to touch the ark. And they were carrying it in a completely non-biblical way. God had said, hey, these, there's these poles, you stick it through the hoops, and that's how you carry it. And then you put it on an ox cart. They had great intentions, but party over. Someone's dead. That would kind of ruin the party, wouldn't it? So for three months, they're not quite sure what to do. They just leave it in the town that Uzzah was killed. They just leave it there. And God blesses that town, and David goes, man, we've we got to bring that ark in. And so after three months, they actually do it properly. They get the priest, they put the pole through, they carry it back in. 
as they go, David sacrifices the whole lamb and is dancing in front of the ark. And that's where his wife says, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm celebrating the ark of God is coming to Jerusalem. So that's where we land today. Now, this brings us to chapter uh, 7. Let's look at the first two verses of 2 Samuel 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and this word house really means palace, okay? You know, um, kind of downgrades it, but it's, he lived in a palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side of his enemies. That means there was no fighting, no one's pursuing him. He's coming to the palace, he's got peace. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. See, when they brought it into Jerusalem, David had set up a tent, curtains. And that's what the ark was now living under, this tent. And the shepherd boy who lived in a tent is now living in a palace, and the God of all the universe, he sees, looks out the window, he sees the God of the universe living in a tent. Kind of a weird time for him. And so he feels a little bit guilty, I think. He sees the differences between his living quarters and the living quarters for God. He's living in this palace that the king of Tyre had donated cedar, cedar timbers and carpenters and stonemasons. And it's truly out of this grateful heart, this celebratory heart that David's so excited that the Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem. And his provision of safety from his enemies, that he brings to Nathan this request to build a temple for God. See, I think it really truly bothered him that he was living in luxury while his divine master was living in a tent. We see this kind of angst that he had in Psalm 132, uh, 3 through 5. You don't need to turn there, but it talks about David's passion for building a temple for the Lord. Listen to these words. Surely I will not enter my house. Remember house, palace. Nor will I lie in my bed, nor will I give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one. David rightfully desired, too, that David would stay with them. When God was with, you, with Israel, Israel prevailed. When God wasn't with Israel and they weren't walking with Israel, things went a mess. And so David is desiring to build a house, a temple, a place, a residence, a permanent place for the Almighty One. And so he shares this idea with Nathan the prophet. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that we actually see Nathan's name being introduced. But we know that later on, Nathan becomes a very strong spiritual influence on David, holding him accountable, sort of a spiritual advisor. And this is the first time we see David probably coming out of the lessons that Pastor Jack has talked about in the past weeks about David not going to God and then messing everything up and then finally coming back to God and then not learning that lesson and then doing his own thing and then messing up and then finally coming back to God. Well, now he desires to hear from God. He's learned this lesson. So he goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he shares this request with him. Look at verse 3. Nathan said to the king, what? What's the two-letter word? Starts with a G, ends with an O. Go, which means yes, right? Do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. See, Nathan's natural judgment and first impressions of this idea were, this is a great idea. This is a great idea. But Nathan apparently hasn't learned the lesson that David has 
because Nathan spoke before consulting God. So David goes to bed hearing a yes. Do you think he was dancing that night? You better believe it. He was so excited. He was thrilled. He could build the temple. He was excited. So he goes to bed excited. Probably didn't sleep a wink. Nathan, on the other hand, goes to bed and look what happens. Verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord, which is God, came to Nathan saying, Go and say to my servant David. Okay, we're just going to stop there. The word servant's really important because it's a very powerful word for God to say of someone. It's not, you are my slave. This is my faithful person who serves me. You're my faithful person. You're my faithful and honored. It's a very complimentary term. So this would be like one of those letters you get. We saw your resume, and we were very impressed. What's the next word? But. Uh, you know, sometimes I used to, like, when, when I would interview and we'd get, you know, you get a, a phone call back, you just, you hear those words and you just want to say, just stop. Just stop right there. If you're going to say no, just hang up. I don't even want to hear it. Just, just walk away. So this is beginning to sound like one of those experiences you'll see in a, a, a moment here. He says, Go to my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? That doesn't sound like a good question from God, does it? The parallel text actually says this, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. At least in this version, it's like, there's at least a question mark still there, you know? Maybe for another sentence or two. But in Chronicles 17.4, it says, You shall not build for me a temple to dwell in. Man, this had to not only hurt David later, because this was shared with David, but this is probably hurting Nathan as well, because now he knows he has to go back to David and tell him no. After telling him yes. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought the sons of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and even in a tabernacle. Whenever I have gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word to one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I don't need a temple to make my name great. I don't need a temple to make my presence known. Where I am, people saw me. When he brought him out of Egypt, he was a pillar of cloud during the day, and at night he was this pillar of fire. There was no denying. God was there. He built a tent. He built a tabernacle, gave him the plans, and these things were to be moved. And God is saying to Nathan and then to David, listen, it doesn't bother me that I'm moving in and out of the people. Maybe he's saying he prefers that as opposed to a place that he's put in. I love the last line. It's basically like he's saying, by the way, I never even asked for one. While David's request is denied, God graciously moves on to the why question, because that's obviously what's going to happen next, right? David comes to Nathan. He knows he needs to seek God's counsel. So he comes to the prophet. He says, Nathan, I need some advice here. I have this temple 
building in mind, I want to build it for God. I want to glorify his name. This is a great idea. Can I do this? Nathan says, yes. Goes away, comes back, he's going to hear a no answer. So if you're going to get a no answer from God, wouldn't it be great to hear the why, too? And so this is what happens. Look at verse 8 and 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, there's that word again, thus says the Lord of the host, I took you from the pasture when he was following the sheep to be the ruler over my people Israel. He's taken the shepherd and he has brought him to be the king. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off your enemies from before you and I will make your name great like the names of the great men who were on the earth. I have always, always been with you, David. Don't you remember what you told Saul when you went to go fight Goliath? You guys remember this? Pastor talked about it several weeks ago, like maybe a month ago. He comes to Saul and Saul says, who are you to do this? He goes, well, God was with me here with the lion. God was with me here with the bear. And God will be with me when I go out to to face this great enemy. God is with me. That's why I'm going to win. When he goes up to Goliath, Goliath says, what are you doing here? And he goes, protecting the name of God, who you're totally denying exists. He's here. He's with me. And bam, you're done. So God is reminding him, listen, don't forget I've always been with you. Don't forget I've always had a plan for you. David, I don't need a lifeless building to live in. I'm living in your life. Around you, with you, through you. I've been constructing an impressive building where I can live. And that place is... best thing is, God's saying, I'm not finished with it yet. You think you're great now. You have the top 40 hits. The women are singing about you. You know, Saul's killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Your name is not even great to what I'm going to make it. I'm not finished with you yet. Now, these words from God to Nathan, starting in verse 6 or uh, verse 5 and following, are seen as very crucial theological statements in the Old Testament. It's the longest recorded monologue from God since Moses. So put that in perspective. We don't have any other recorded monologue as long as this. It's 197 words. Do you think we should be paying attention to this? You think David would be paying attention to this? He probably has not seen this many words from God coming to him. And although these verses don't mention a covenant or a promise anywhere, it's perceived as one in the rest of Scripture. Let's continue. Let's go back to eight and read the following. Now, therefore, I, you shall say to my servant David, says the Lord of the hosts, I took you from the pasture, following sheep, to be the ruler of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. I will make your name great like the, uh, the names of the great men who were on earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they might live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them as they have formerly. Even from the day I've commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. David came wanting to build a house for the Lord, which was a temple. 
But God says, nope, sorry, I'm actually going to build a house for you. And surprise, it's a dynasty. An even greater dynasty than David could possibly have imagined. Let's continue reading, verse 12. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, which is just a fancy way for saying, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. If I want a temple, I'll name the time, I'll name the place, and I'll name the builder. And it will be one of your offspring, not you. And I will establish that throne, your bloodline, forever. And at this point, David's probably stopped reeling from the no answer. He's probably starting to just catch on what's being said to him, you know. When you hear a no or you hear something you don't really want to hear, like the doctor comes out, he says the cancer word, everything kind of like goes blurry. And then he says, you know, you have any other questions? And you're like, you're still blurry? I mean, that's where we're at with David's problem. He's coming out of this blur of hearing, no, you can't build the temple. And he's realizing that God is saying, I'm building something better for you, not you for me. I mean, if you're going to hear a no, this would be kind of the no that you'd want to hear, right? not the no, but I reject you. This is the no, but I have a better plan. And David's probably starting to feel a little bit built up. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity or sin, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. God will treat him like a son and discipline him when he sins. And I will use others to correct him and bring him in line. And I will not stop loving him like I did with Saul, who I rejected because he rejected me. He stopped following me, so I rejected his kingdom and gave it to you. But when your offspring sins, I will not do the same to him. In loving kindness, I will correct him. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now this was a unilateral covenant that God makes with David. This means that only one party is responsible for this. kind of reminds me of the covenant that Jonathan made with David. Actually a bunch of covenants that Jonathan just threw himself at David. David must have a really magnetic personality to attract God to him, you know? Maybe that's why he calls him a man after my own heart. God was attracted to David, too, and wanted a relationship with him. And so he he said, this is what I'm going to do for you. Just go back to verse 9. I'm going to read through some of the eyes. Search for all the eyes as we go. Verse 9. I've been with you. I've cut off your enemies. I will make your name great. Verse 10. I will appoint a place. I will plant my people. Verse 11, I will give you rest. I will make a house for you. Verse 12, I will raise a descendant. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, I will establish his throne forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him. I will correct him. I will use others to correct him. Verse 15, and my loving kindness will not depart from him. And verse 16, this is forever. 
And if you want to parcel it, I come up with 15. Some other people came up with more, some with less. But I see 15 promises that God gives to David without expectation. This is what God will do. And if you're going to get a no answer, this would be a no answer to give. No, but I have something better. And although 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 does refer to Solomon, I would be remiss not to mention that it is better actually fulfilled in Jesus. He was the son of David from the lineage. He had an eternal throne being God. He built a house, a temple. He said that he would tear down the temple and build it up in three days on many occasions. He had an imperishable kingdom, meaning no one could take it from him. He was the son of God, obviously. And although he didn't sin, he took the punishment for us all. And this covenant to David from God, birthed out of a no answer, helped shape the messianic expectations that would then be fulfilled in Jesus. And people would go back and say, he's fulfilled this, he's fulfilled this, he's fulfilled this, he's fulfilled this. This is the king of kings. And generations of displaced Israelites then and today, those who don't know Jesus, look back to this covenant, this promise, as the seed of hope for their generation. A promise that God would keep, a promise that God did keep, and a promise that we know changes Look at verse 17. And according with all these words and to this vision, Nathan spoke it to David. It's not one of those conversations that I would have wanted been a priest or a, a prophet at that point. Getting the word from God. I would have been like Moses. Can you send my brother? But Nathan shares this. And as Nathan wraps up this report of what God told him to do, David had a choice to make, didn't he? What would he do with God's no answer? Is he going to become bitter? Or will he become better? Will he sit down and sorrow and wallow in his self-pity? Or will he stand up and shout for joy? Redirected. What will he do with God's answer? You want to know? Oh, you're going to have to wait till next week. Two weeks, because we have communion. Oh, this is like the ultimate cliffhanger. We've never done this before. You're going to get the answer in two weeks. You're going to have to sit on it. Don't read ahead. Actually, you can read ahead. Just don't tell anyone that's not reading ahead. But this morning, you know, I ended with a point. We're going to actually flip this around on you. Are you ready for this? What do you do when God tells you no? What do you do? You know, many of us hear no from God a lot. We do. It's just a natural thing. We're taught when we pray, God gives us three answers, right? The one we love to hear. We love to hear that. The one he employs more often, though, is what? It starts with a W. Waits, all right? Usually there's like silence, and you're like, are you listening? 
And then we pray for clear direction. And we get on our knees and we're like, dear Lord, show me without a doubt what it is. And I will do what you tell me to do. Especially if it's to minister into Hawaii to surfers only one day a week. You know, we pray those prayers. And then God comes and says what? No. And we're like, are you sure, God? If you tell me, straightforward, I will do what you do. And we like change the whole thing up, right? And we like, and then he says, no. And we're like, why? I hear why he's great. He says stuff like, no, I don't want you to do that. No, I don't want you to move there. No, I don't want you to marry that person. No, I don't want you to work there. No, I don't want you to start that ministry. That's a hard one. You start a ministry up and you have this great idea and God says, no. You're like, why? It's a ministry. But he says, no, I have another plan. No, I have a better plan. No, I have something else in mind. But, but. get them all the time. Thank God for you, right? Because if I did everything I wanted to do and I had God's approval, we'd all be in trouble. We might even make the national news. I'm just saying, sometimes no can be good. So here it is. Instead of asking God why or why not, the typical questions, the responses we get, Today, maybe we should start asking, what? What do you want me to do? Instead of asking the typical why or why not questions, we should start asking, what? And not, maybe not in that tone, but, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is it you're asking me to do? You know, God has clearly demonstrated, not only in today's passage, but from cover to cover, and also in many of our lives today, that he has a plan, and his will is going to be done, and in the end, his name is going to be glorified, and everything's going to be awesome. But what will you do when he tells you no? Instead of asking God why or why not, maybe you should start asking what, or what do you want me to do? Because it's that change in perspective that can make the difference. Now, normally, I don't go to a quick book find an illustration. But in my study, I came across this, this thing. I could not get away from it. I tried to. But there was this family in Scotland, the Clark family. And th- they had a dream. They had a dream of leaving Scotland and making a new life for them in America, the land of opportunity. And, and so for years and years, they scrimped and they saved and they, and they gathered their funds and they, they went without to make sure they had enough money to buy tickets for the dad and the mom and their nine children, nine kids. You think I'm crazy. Nine. Okay? And no, Joseph is not getting another baby girl. We told him he needs to like the ones he's got. But these have nine, and so they saved up for years and years, and finally they get enough money for this passage, and this new boat comes along, and they buy tickets for this, and they all get excited 
about their new life in America. But seven days before they were to board the ship, seven days, the youngest gets bit by a dog. Which doesn't sound bad. The kid was stitched up and it seemed like he was going to be fine. But on the way out, the doctor put a yellow sheet in front of the door. Which at that time meant quarantine. For seven days, they would have to observe the boy to see if he came down with rabies. The family's dream of a new life was dashed. No refunds. They would not be able to go to America. Filled with anger and disappointment, Mr. Clark, not this one, but the other guy from Scotland, maybe that's where your, your descendants come from, he, he stomped all the way down to the dock muddling under his breath, and he watched the boat leave the dock. And in that moment, he curses God and he cursed his son forever getting bit. And it ruined his day. Five days later, though, news spread through Scotland that the ship that the Clark should have been on sank. And many, many, many perished. The boat? The Titanic. When news reached Mr. Clark, he hugged his son and thanked him. A huge change. You know, back then they didn't know what schizophrenia was, but I'm sure that's what the kid was thinking. Dad, yesterday you were swearing at me, and today you're telling me I saved the family? And not only that, he got on his knees and he thanked God for sparing his family and saving his life. What felt like a tragedy to him actually turned into the greatest blessing of his life. And perspective makes a huge difference, doesn't it? So what will you do when God tells you no? Because guess what? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Instead of asking God why or why not, it's time that we start asking him, God, what do you want me to do? Because you really don't want to miss out on God's blessing, do you? When we wallow and we sorrow and we blame God for saying no and we get mad at Him, sometimes we can miss the greatest blessing of our whole entire life. Do you know what I'm saying? Or we go through it and we don't enjoy it as much as God wanted us to. So what are you going to do when God tells you no? Let's pray. care for us. And in that care and in that kindness, sometimes you tell us no because we need to hear a no. Your word says that your plans are, are better than our plans. Your thoughts are better than our thoughts. Your ways are better than our ways. And Lord, today I pray that you would help us to be receptive when we pray to hear your word. If you say no, that we would stop and thank you and ask 